What to do, you little aperture of God unfolding through the infinite universe, not realizing that you are a part of a cosmic being and you think that you're alone? Me too sometimes. Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. This is part two of the Jaggers and Gotzi series. There's probably going to be a part nine. Um, if you haven't checked out the first episode, I would invite you to go peep that before listening to this one. But we picked up right where we left off. And one of the things that I articulate at the end of the podcast is that I can feel that something unique and special happens when I get the opportunity to do a podcast in person and when the other person's nervous system is fully present and in the room and isn't either self-conscious or afraid or acting that there's this resonance that begins to happen between the two of our nervous systems where we begin to say things we've never said before. We connect ideas we've never connected before. And almost like we're actively adding to the other person's map in real time as we speak. And this is one of those podcasts. And I can feel that the feedback that I get from y'all is that y'all love the podcasts where I interview people, but you guys want to hear me talk more or at least hear me explore like whatever is at the bleeding edge of my curiosity. And this is one of those podcasts. So um, you guys are going to motherfucking enjoy this. And as always, if you would like to support the podcast, the most direct way is to sign up for my newsletter at ericgotzi.com. And if you want to help me avoid ever having to try to sell you tax or soap, uh, you can help pay for this podcast by checking out my journaling courses. Uh, they're both at ericgotzi.com. And then share this motherfucker with anyone that you think that it will help. And as always... There is so much noise going on in the world and the fact that you've chosen to bring your awareness here now. I'm indescribably grateful. So love y'all. Thank y'all. And please enjoy. All right, brother. Thank you so much for having me back for part two. You know, we went in on the last episode. Hopefully all you guys enjoyed and we had to continue this conversation because I really think we were getting somewhere and where we kind of left off, I feel, is that, you know, kind of that first phase that I think that people are trying to go through or going through at this moment where, you know, becoming aware of their, you know, their past wounds, moving through that, you know, kind of finding the gold within the shadow and bringing that out into the world and expressing that in such a way where it helps the collective of humanity or, or maybe just your tribe or your smaller community at home. And then once you kind of do that, you, you elevate to this next level where it's, it's like, there's a deeper sort of responsibility. Yeah. And that's the word that I've really been trying to sit with um, responsibility because we we all feel this responsibility on our shoulders. And when I work on people physically, it's like, why is there so much tension in people's shoulders? And it's, it's responsibility. Yeah. And responsibility is the ability to respond, the ability to respond to a given situation. And we live in this global brain 
world where you know we can have something tragic happen in china or anywhere across the world and we hear about it within minutes and how are we able to respond to that right we're not designed to we're not designed to be able to respond to that so our we're, we're um treasuring through waters that we really haven't before and we haven't figured out a way to be responsible to the collective shit that's going on i think all of us feel it within our body like we were saying there's an innate intelligence within our body and our body is is um you know reflecting what's going on with the the gaia you know yeah exactly gaia so how when we hear something that's terrible that's going on such as the I mean, there's so so many of the things that you said in the last podcast, you know, the existential crisis. Um, that we hear about it, but it doesn't really land fully for us because we're not responsible. And therefore, there's a lot of us that, or all of us, I would say, to a certain extent, are dissociating in a certain capacity. Yeah, on some level, in order to even function, you must disassociate. Like the thing that I imagine is one of the things about becoming a mature person is recognizing what is my sphere of competence slash influence. Mm. And that if you are someone who um, believes that they don't have trauma, and that you've been kind of in the same relationship patterns and that you still haven't had that conversation with your parent that you know that you've had to have for 20 years, your sphere of competence might be like your bedroom. Like, can you at least start to make your bed? Mm. And then once you start to have a realm of competence in your direct environment, it seems like you begin cultivating that competence with yourself can you choose food that's good for you can you get your body to sweat when you know you need to get it to sweat and that might take years but that that's the place to start and then once you start to develop competence there can you start to develop competence with your friends can you start to tell the truth can you start to have the hard conversations with the people closest to you that are meaningful and cultivating and healing and most people get stuck there. Yeah. But once you learn how to do that, then it seems to be that the next level of competence is, can you start to be a node in your family that becomes mm -hmm. healing? You know, like the people that uh, birthed you and the people that are responsible for the type of traumas that the people who birthed you, can you start to be a light to that? And then it seems to be, can you find your place of competence within the tribe that you want to live in? You know, and all of us have, um, on some level, we are either seeking or are in the midst of the group of people that we want to be accepted by. And that that would be Bill Plotkin's third stage of development out of his eight. And on Plotkin's model, he believes that most people get stuck there for the rest of their lives which is really trying to find their authentic expression, which is this like third or fourth sphere of competence that's grown out of the individual sphere, the direct relational feel of sphere, the family sphere. And then there's this like tribal sphere. 
And then the thing that's been tough for me is recognizing, oh, wow, I've achieved that to some degree, to some degree, not fully. And now it feels like because I've developed that level of competence, my soul is like, now you are ready to feel the first callings of my life of trying to become competent at a cultural level. And I'm completely overwhelmed right now by how do I even begin to see what is happening in the cultural level? And how do I even begin to act in a way that can be a reflection of competence and healing and cultivating a more healing way to be in my culture? And, you know, there's this great quote, and it's misattributed to like the Buddha, but we don't know who actually said it, but it's this, it's this meme that's been passed down. And it's that when I was young, I tried to change the world. When I realized I couldn't change the world, I tried to change my culture. When I realized I couldn't change my culture, I tried to change my tribe. When I wasn't able to change my tribe, I tried to change my family. And now as an old man, I realize all I can do is change myself. But once I changed myself, I began to change my family. And once I changed my family, I began to change my tribe. And once I changed my tribe, I began to change my culture. And once I began to change my culture, I saw that I improved the world. And so there's this feeling that like young people, for me, for sure, and for most young people that I can see who, has, who have that like spark of life, of like revolutionary fire inside of them, they want to start at the culture, but their bodies are sick. Yeah. And their direct relationships are sick. And their family relationships are sick. And they want to talk about how to like revolutionize capitalism or how to revolutionize like the agricultural system or how to revolutionize the pharmaceutical system or whatever it is. But it's like, I love and admire that you have that fire. But it, but can you make your bed? Right, exactly. <laughs> There's a metaphor that Jordan Peterson put forth that I always think about now. And it's that if you're a 20-year-old and you genuinely feel like the helicopter can be improved, but you try to change the schematics of the helicopter, the chances of you doing something that's going to lead to the pilot dying is almost 99.9% sure. Can the helicopter be improved? Yes. Have you earned the competence to even begin to fuck with the inner workings of the helicopter? Probably not. You know, and so the invitation is start where you can with what you have and where you start is first your relationship to yourself. Mm, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's always um I I could I've seen this with my family specifically and I think that's where a lot of this started for me and as you heard in part 1, you know, I there was a drive to help um my mother specifically and my dad uh, who you know struggled with severe addiction issues and 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 uh, yeah drugs and all of that and and I wanted to you know I saw the mental health paradigm and and the um, just the toll that it was taking on our collective and I wanted to help it so bad and that was the driving force within me and 
as soon as I, you know, I, while I was in school, I was really close to my mom and I was watching her suffer and I was trying to offer all of the different modalities that I was trained in to her Same, dude. and my Same. dad. And even just like making them clean food and, and you know, helping them in those sort of ways. And it actually was, it, it was making things worse. You know, and, and I came about it from a, a place of, of um, I would say, angst. And, and I came about it from a place of sadness and anger and a place of, you know, I, I probably came at it from the full spectrum of human emotions and none of them were effective. And I had to go through this state of separation or, or, or almost creating enough boundaries between me and them and that came as a result of knowing what i needed inside and working on myself and being obviously you know as cliche as, as that sounds being the change yeah and and working on myself and letting that just continue to <laughs> do the work for for me as they start to feel my field my my nervous system field change you know i think that's having an effect on them even more but um i still struggle with that today i mean if you if if you go by ram or ram das's quote it's <laughs> like you think you're enlightened go spend a week with your family it's like holy fuck man that that will um that will rock your world yeah i had almost the exact same experience and it's that the reason I got into psychology is because I wanted to help my mother because uh, she had pretty severe depression on and off in my childhood. And then once I went to college and I started to learn some of these things, really the thing that really began to change my life was um, <clears throat> slowly starting to recognize that sugar is poisonous. Like it's, it's, it's so funny, but I remember I took a plane ride from my family's home back to where I was living in Texas at the time. And I was a freshman and I read this book and I forget what it was called, but it was basically the first time I'd ever read any books about diet. And it was about this psychiatrist or psychologist that looked at um, childhood disorders. And it was like, if you just remove sugar from these children's diet, um, their ADHD and their mm. defiance disorder and all these other things start to just go away. And so I started um, cutting out sugar to the degree that like it was in everything. You know, like if you look at the classic childhood breakfast, there's like 60 to 100 grams of sugar if you eat cereal and then you have toast and you drink a big mm. thing of orange juice. And the big thing for me was uh, starting to have like a bulletproof style coffee in the morning that had a bunch of butter that had um, MCT oil and just coffee and just feeling the difference in my body. Um, I began to work out. Yeah. Uh, I began to lose a bunch of like fat around my body. And when I was in college, I would try to get my mom to change. And like, mm -hmm. I would call her on the phone and we would talk about all these things. And it got to the point where my mom was like, I can't talk to you anymore. Like yeah. the way that I feel when I talk to you is I feel like I'm bad and I feel like I'm wrong. Oh, and that man. was not my I intention so much. at all. But it got to the point where my mom and I weren't really able to talk on the phone for a while. And I didn't do it consciously, but just kind of organically, um, I started a blog 
like probably about six months after that. It's still on the internet. It's called godseesirony.blogspot.com or some shit like that. <laughs> and I started to write about the things that I was learning about psychology, the things that I was learning about health, the thing that I was the things that I was learning about psychedelics. And I did that for like two years. And then I started a podcast and I started talking to people. I started sharing what I was doing. And um, I never had brought any of these things up again to my mom. And then when I was a senior in high school, I got a text from my mom. And my mom said, um, I've quit smoking and I've quit taking my antidepressants. And I was like, oh my God, how, what, what happened? And she said, I've been reading your blog and I've been listening to your podcast and it's really inspired me. And it was, it's, it's one of the peak feelings of my entire life. And the thing that I realized after a couple of years since that has happened is that when you directly go to someone you love and you're trying to change them, unless they've done a tremendous amount of work, which they likely haven't, if you're feeling this need to go try to change them, their instinct is going to feel, oh my God, I'm wrong. Oh my God, I'm bad. I'm broken. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. And being in my reflection of my awareness made them feel worse. Mm. But once I created a place where they could incognito go absorb the information without feeling like they were being seen, mm -hmm. she was able to, at her own pace, begin to make the changes that needed to be made. And this is why I advocate to people who feel called to this path, like, share your stories. And there's a way to share your stories that is out of alignment, you know, where you're yeah. doing it to like find attention or you're doing it to, you know, it's almost Validation. like vulnerability porn, but mm -hmm. most people aren't doing that. And that the thing that I share with people is it's like, you have no idea who's watching. Like all of us, all of us, no matter how big your platform is, there's like five to 10 people who always looked up to you in high school that you might have no idea that they looked up to you and they're paying attention. And if you share any of your vulnerable transformation stories, one of them is going to be so deeply impacted by that. And it might be a family member. And the thing for my mom that actually created the massive change in her life is um, <clears throat> I started talking about how we've we are designed by evolution to walk something like 10 to 15 miles a day. And that simply walking for a couple of hours a day is incredibly transformative. And she started walking and uh, the family that lived with her at the time thought that she was super weird and everyone in the neighborhood thought that she was this like crazy old lady that was walking for like five to six hours a day. but. She started to lose an incredible amount of weight. She started to be able to sleep well at night. She organically started to listen to more podcasts while she was going on these walks. And um, because of the like books that I was recommending on the podcast, she started listening to those books. And she was able to, at her own pace, come to her own transformation. And it's one of the stories that I constantly share with people who are kind of on the same path as you and I are. Whereas that uh, anyone who feels called to be a healer is because they're wounded and that that's beautiful. And it's that your wound is actually the thing that's going to give you your potential superpowers and your medicine. And that it's 
The reason cliches are cliches are because if you actually embody the wisdom, they've been true for thousands or tens of thousands of years. But they feel like a cliche if you can only say them and you don't feel them. Mm. And the cliche is be the change and allow that to be the thing that starts to change people. Because the thing is, is that all of us want to be in alignment with our dharma. <clears throat> and all of us have a body intelligence that knows what it feels like when we see it. And so if you can just truly show up to your motherfucking life the way that you are called to show up to it, the people around you feel it. And the people who are ready to feel all the pain that they've been running from, which is the reason why they're not in alignment with their dharma, they will start to do it. And that it almost seems like it's a rite of passage that every healer has to go through. And healer might be a triggering word. We talked about that on the first podcast, but that it's almost like a rite of passage for any self-actualizing person where as soon as they start to feel better, they feel like they have to go tell the people around them, oh my God, do this, do this. And it has the opposite effect. Mm. Absolutely, brother. And one thing that I really started to realize is that, and especially I teach this, and this is very hard to teach as well, but I teach this in my, you know, in my trainings when people want to become a practitioner. It's that you have to completely shift your paradigm from the from coming from the space of wanting to fix somebody. From wanting, from coming from the space of wanting to um, fix somebody specifically, and the fixing, uh, the striving to fix somebody is to say that they are broken, just like we, you know, and and that fixation. If you look at that on an energetic perspective, if I came or if you came to me and I wanted to fix you, I'm directly putting on pressure on you. I'm putting more stress. I'm actually putting more trauma on you because I am looking at you as you are broken. One of the fundamental, most powerful aspects that a person can embody is to honor the innate intelligence of someone else's being. And if you can, and, and it's not just thinking that, it's having that communicated from your nervous system, from your field. When I am with somebody and I can just sit with them and it's communicated from my being that I am honoring the innate intelligence of this person's being, that nothing is wrong with them, that there is an intelligence coursing with every, through every one of their cells that are repairing on a cellular level, uh, that you're digesting your food. You are, there's so many autonomic things that are going on within your body and you can sit in the same space with somebody that is honoring that intelligence that is way more powerful than anything our rational mind could ever um, <laughs> acknowledge that magical shit starts to happen because that person has probably already gone to doctors, therapists, psychologists, whatever that is, has gone from the mindset of this person is broken and we need to fix them. We need to do something. And, you know, we talked about the, 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 um, the label of healer. And I do, you know, I get triggered specifically of that because I think that most people come from that relationship of, you know, this person's broken. They need to come to me because I can heal them. 
And it's, it's not that it's that this person comes to me, my personal embodiment and my personal alignment is that I help them recognize that they are a healer. My embodiment of my own healing and my own honoring of my innate intelligence of my body. And that starts to, that starts to ripple effect into the innate intelligence of Gaia itself. That reminds them, it helps them remember, remember all of the pieces of themselves that are, um, you know, uh, disconnected and magical shit starts to happen. And that's, that's just, that's just the, the place, the state in which you need to come from when you are working from with somebody. And that doesn't happen, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't just happen. That is a byproduct and a result of being so deeply connected with yourself and doing the work yourself. And I think a lot of us, we originally come from this very um, logical, or rational space of the mind. And just like we were saying, you know, to have a competency level uh, within yourself first, that's actually bringing all of your energy back into your body. And most people that I work with, there's so much energy in their head. There's so much energy in the overthinking mind that they need to bring their awareness, their intelligence, reclaim all of the pieces of themselves back into their body and honoring. And when you are truly, you know, not just saying that you're honoring the innate intelligence of your being, your actions will follow. Yeah. You will be, you will be eating the right food. You will be taking care of your space. Um, you, you will be paying attention to the emotions that are running through your body, the felt sense. You will become very sensitive. And it's not just a metaphor that you're a healer. Like, it's a biological fact that every single human that's ever existed is a healer because when you get a cut, Mm -hmm. you can heal. And even in the moment that you are listening to this podcast, if you had the scale of awareness to be aware of what's happening at a cellular level, you are healing right now all the time. And the thing that comes to mind, um, I'm going to see if I can piece this together because it's kind of intricate, but it's that... To be a healer or to hold the position of healing is to create a um, uneven power distribution between you and the person that you are healing. But that the intricate part is that if I've if if I have a back spasm, yeah, I benefit from having someone who has the knowledge and the capability to specifically work on me in such a way where it reduces my pain enough so I can even walk again. Mm. But if I create a relationship where whenever my back is upset, I need to go to that person, they then become a drug. They Mm. become an enabler and they actually keep me in this box that I can never get out of. And so there's this sensitive uh, intelligence of, of the person who has the capability to heal that if someone is in crisis mode, help them directly. But that once you get them past crisis mode, the intelligence is you have to have the ability to step more and more back and then give them the tools to be able to heal themselves. And that in the same way that a mother must 
feed a child directly when the child is an infant. Uh, it, you will have the Oedipal complex if that mother continues to treat the infant as if it's an infant, but they're 10 and they're 15 or they're 20 or they're 25. And you actually eat their potential of becoming a individual onto themselves if you continue to treat them as if they're in the type of crisis moment that they were at when they were an infant. And there's this quote that comes to mind that if you choose to misunderstand it, you can misunderstand it, but if you choose to feel into the wisdom of it, it can completely change the way that you relate to helping people. And it's that when you solve a problem for someone else on some level, you are robbing them of their destiny. 100%. That you're robbing them of their genuine becoming. And I think the reason why it's important to feel into the intricacies of that is that if a child is drowning in a lake, I am not going to stand on the dock and try to instruct the child how to swim. Yeah. I'm going to jump into the fucking water and grab that child and bring them onto the dock and give them CPR if I need to. But then after that point, if I'm their parent or if I'm their uncle or if I'm one of their friends and I'm paying attention, I'm going to teach them how to swim. But it's after I fucking saved them and gave them CPR. And so there's this intricate dynamic or spectrum of anyone who has the ability to heal is to be able to feel in the direct moment, when do I need to save? Because sometimes yeah. you do. And you can make the argument that you never need to save. Like you could bring in the pure Buddha or the um, almost the exaggerated Ramdas who's able to say, and this, yeah, and this. And I've had someone make that argument to me where it's like, you're believing that you are even responsible on some level for trying to improve the cultural situation. That's the trap of the ego. And like my visceral bodily response to that is, yeah, you can make the argument that it's okay to sit at the edge of the water and say, and this, I'm going to be the fucker that jumps into the water and grabs the kid. And if that's, 100%. And if, if that's a function of my ego, I accept that and I dance with that and I fucking celebrate that. And I'm also going to pay attention to, do I need to be validated by being the one who jumps into the water when maybe they're just splashing, you know, because there is a trap there. It's an interesting dichotomy, brother. It's an interesting dichotomy and it's a dance because I think this is actually getting to the piece of, of um, integrating both kind of Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy as far as the medical system. You know, the, the Western medical system is um, incredible at being able to save someone's life. But as far as preventative healthcare and teaching people the day-to-day -day patterns that got them into that position in the first place. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And, you know, if you use the example of, you know, you having a back spasm and um, what actually caused that back spasm in the beginning, and that's probably, um, you know, you are a culmination of your day-to-day -day patterns of you. You're, you're not what you do sometimes. You are what you repeatedly do. Yep. And me as a body worker, um, and that aspect of my training, like I, I know perhaps, you know, I can, I can probably figure out where in your body those imbalances are and help you to release it to some sort of capacity. But then if you go back into your same day-to-day -day patterns, right. you're going to develop that same thing again. And then you're yep. just going to have to come back to me. So it's, it's not only that, like, I can help you get out of pain in the moment, but how do I also 
help bring awareness to the state of being that you're living in you know 24 hours of day a day and and helping you kind of bring awareness obviously that's the first step to healing anything to those patterns so that you can innately or you can change those patterns yourself because any um sustainable change it has to come from the inside out or if you if you flip it it becomes that drug or it becomes that poison yeah and one of the things that i'm constantly feeling into is how our culture seems to have unfolded in such a way where we have created structures both physical and mental that uh default to people being sick and it's like why did that even develop and i can feel that one of the things that is kind of overwhelming me is like it feels like i'm being called for the first time in my life to really look at like the history of the development of western culture and how did it get to this point where our default environment is essentially to make people chronically sick and i don't i mean i truly do not believe that it's malicious or that it's on purpose i think that there's almost been this like we have biological defaults and one of the biological defaults is to conserve energy and to be comfortable like that's a biological default and we've unconsciously created systems that um there's this thing in evolutionary psychology called hypernormal stimuli and in hypernormal stimuli is when you create some type of stimulus that activates one of our primal drives and then you turn the volume all the way up and then if you're not aware it automatically makes you like addicted to that thing and so a classic example would be like mcdonald's like hundreds of geniuses have been employed by this energy of this corporation to create the most salty and savory and sweet combination of tastes and activations that you know a hundred thousand years ago if you had that amount of salt and that amount of sugar in a bite it would have been like the peak experience of your life maybe <laughs> or at least the peak sensory flavor mouth pleasure experience of your life and you might get it once and then also like porn is like a hyper norm use a hyper normal stimuli um television movies social media social yeah exactly and that we have this like comfort button and like the room that we are in right now is a hyper normal stimulus to comfort like the fact that we have air conditioning and refrigeration and at the touch of a button we can have food at our house like if you don't have the awareness that this is actually making you sick when you have too much of it, it's so easy to devolve into um, the addiction of the comfort. And the other thing that is heavy on me whenever I start to talk about this is it's like, <laughs> it's a function of our privilege and our luck that we even have the extra energetic capacity to begin to critically from a meta level look at how our culture is operating in a way that makes us sick because the average person is born into a traumatic dynamic family and then they're thrust out into this 
mutated, sick version of capitalism, which just as a side note, the core of capitalism feels like it is actually deeply intelligent, but that mm -hmm. the way it's unfolded in our culture over the last couple hundred years is it's been eroded and degraded and, and it's fucking yeah. sick. But that people get thrust into this capitalistic model where they probably already have debt. They're, they're being taught skills that do not transfer directly to be successful in the quote unquote work environment that if they don't learn how to do, they're going to have a hard fucking time. They haven't been taught how to eat. They haven't been taught how to move their body. They haven't been taught that a lot of the things in their home that they buy, that their parents bought, have toxins inside of them that are fucking with their gut and their nervous system and their brain. And they're chronically fatigued. They're confused by what's yeah. going on. We were given no owner's manual right. for this, this uh, meat suit that we've been given. And so there's this part of me that feels like you're a tall, intelligent, healthy white dude. And you're talking about, you know, like how, privilege, man. how fucked up things are. And that like, there's so many people that I know who didn't have the same type of luck. It's luck that I have the IQ that I have. It's luck that I have the body that I have. And it's luck that I was born into a Western culture that treats white men differently. Like in my childhood, I never felt like I was less than. And that's something that most humans do not, at least in Western culture, cannot claim. You know, and that, that was luck. That was not a function of my competence or a function of my like libertarian, I fucking did it by my bootstraps type of shit. But then it also feels like uh, if I let that guilt keep me from trying to help and solve the things that I can see, then you know I'm not using the privilege that I've been given. And so there's this swirl that comes up in me when I start to critique the system because um, I can feel that it's a function of my privilege that I even am at a place where I can. Mm. Is it luck or is it, you know, there's this argument of destiny versus, you know, free choice or fate, right. fate versus free will. And is it luck or is it, is it destiny? I think personally, I think we can, you know, unpack that a little bit and um, maybe define it. But I think that, you know, all of us, we are born into a family. Um, we have a default setting of our body we have a default setting of what we are, are born into we didn't choose that per se um <laughs> you for me i i chose that story because it supports me that <laughs> what we talked about in the last podcast but um is it a function of is is everything destined is it luck that has unfolded you to to be in this position where we can you know start to take a look at these societal issues or or is it is it a function of your free will and the path that you've chosen and i i don't think it's i don't think it is one or the other i think it is both but if we look at trauma specifically trauma is a um is a uh it is a symptom of or it is a blockage of not being able to be in the present moment and to express authentically and to express present. authentically it is it is a um it is a function of being stuck in in the past perhaps and and the past is not 
the things that happened yesterday. It's the past is what stayed from what happened yesterday. And the past becomes our present. We continue mm. to, to unfold from that place. So, you know, unconscious patterns or unconscious or unprocessed trauma starts to play itself out in day to day because it has it, it is that unconscious past that continues to play out and play out in our in our day to day because you know c- conscious consciousness creates more free will it creates mm-hmm. more choice if you are if you are unconscious of the decisions that you are making meaning that you are unaware of the decisions that you are making that's destiny because that will continue to unfold and, yeah, and the you thing are that i want to offer there just so we can be playing with the same words is that yeah i would make the argument that um so there's a quote by carl jung that i love and it's that until the unconscious becomes conscious it will control your life and you will call, you it, will fate. call it fate yeah what it feels like though is also the acorn has a destiny that it's yeah. seeking to manifest that's not the same as fate and just for us to play on this podcast, I'd like to define fate is the unconscious unfolding of the trauma or the beliefs that you have that you haven't yet made conscious. And destiny is the thing inside of you that the moment the the zygote was created between the merging of your father's sex cell and your mother's sex cell, there was this like imprint of a song. And the song is what wants to be expressed through you. It's the energy inside the acorn that wants to become an oak tree. And I would say just for the sake of this dance, that's destiny. Yeah. Whereas if the moment you came into the world, you then started to incur this unconscious myth that you're not good enough, that becomes a fate that needs to be integrated so that your destiny can come forward. So just for the mm, sake yeah, of we this need to dance, define, we need to define the words. I would like to offer that destiny is the, is the song inside of you that wants to be played. It's the, mm-hmm. there's this other really interesting way to look at it is that the moment you are conceived, the universe asks you as a being a specific question and your life is the answer to that question. And that the genuine expression of answering that question is your destiny but the unconscious incurring of the traumas or just the behavioral patterns that you have would be fate Mm, beautiful yeah i think it's important and just as a side note um there's so much healing that can happen when we start to define our words and just being with somebody um and asking if you were to ask somebody what they want what they want, if it's love, if it's relationship, well, let's define it. But what does it actually mean to you? Because we words are the carrier of meaning and we put the meaning on the word. And most of the time we're walking around in society um, using the same words, but we have different meaning. Therefore, we're, we're not in actual relation. A hundred different people, if you ask them what love means, you're going to get probably a hundred different answers. And also what's interesting is that understanding the way that the psyche functions um a much like as a evolutionary creature we were functioning off emotion and vision for hundreds of thousands of years before we ever got words instinct and emotion right and specifically images too like Mm. the archaic language of the part of the psyche that speaks to you in dreams is almost never in words sometimes there's words but it's always 
emotions linked to images or like movies mm. or like things that you're seeing. And so one of the invitations, if you really want to get deep into someone else's psyche or your own psyche is what's the, what's the image that you see when you say you want love? Like, mm -hmm. what is it that you're actually seeking from a image or mm. movie standpoint? Like what's the scene yeah. that you An see? An image is worth a thousand words. Yeah. And just to tie this full circle, now that we have the, the definition of fate, which that was what I was actually talking about versus destiny, um, you know, people that are in that first, you know, four stages that you brought up with Bill Pluck and, you know, uh, identifying or becoming aware of your traumas and the trauma is, is, you know, unresolved past that has, you know, the past is not what happened yesterday. It's what stayed from what happens yesterday and becomes your default setting, your default circumstances and the, and the place that you're acting out in the world from. And as soon as you start to make that conscious, you are, you are able to make decisions from a conscious place instead of having those decisions made for you from an unconscious place. And therefore you're able to move throughout the world with more free will and actually, you know, being able to make decisions and you could call this manifestation if you will. Um, but once you kind of move past that, then it becomes this, you start to realize that it is a collective thing. And that's where I would like to go with this after this. And we kind of um, left off on the last podcast with this, but we are born into a collectively traumatized world. And we didn't necessarily have a choice on that. And therefore we're feeling the responsibility once we've become aware of our own, you know, we've, we've had a certain level of competency um, with ourselves, with, you know, making our bed, our day-to-day -day patterns, our body, our relationships. Once you start to be, you know, bring consciousness to all of that and you're moving from this place of free will, then you find, you feel the responsibility of the collective and, like we were saying, a lot of this, this um, ancestral healing piece is that when you are doing that sort of work for yourself, you are healing ancestrally because you are, you know, that, that past, those past things that have um, became your present day, you are starting to rewire it. And then eventually, I think you reach this point of how do I set up the world in such a way where we don't continue to birth children into this tra traumatized world or you see what i'm saying i do the thing that arises for me is that we talked about this on the first podcast that gaia has a collective intelligence where it's connected to every single organism that grows out of it and the metaphor that comes to mind that feels like it makes the most sense is that Gaia is offering up a symphony and that each of us are specific instruments mm -hmm. and that with every birth of a new creature, Gaia is feeling into the intelligence of what type of instrument do I need to have this, have the symphony be able to be played beautifully with this iteration of the instruments that are currently alive on the planet. 
and that your destiny is not a act to complete, but mm. the full expression of your specific instrument and the jazz of the symphony that's trying yeah. to be played. And so it's not about trying to figure out with the mind about what thing needs to be done because anything that can be done is really a noun. Yeah. The invitation it's a is being. can you feel into the mm -hmm. instrument that is your authentic expression? And then can you play from that place? And then as you play from that place, you become a tuning yeah. function is to it, all the is instruments. Is it attuned to the grand symphony of life that's unfolding? Right. And that the core of Bill Plotkin's model is essentially the first half of life is to tune to your culture so you don't fucking die. But if the culture is out of tune with Gaia, once you've found your place within the culture, mm. the next half of your life is now how do I tune to the grand symphony, which is the thing that's coming out of Gaia. And that a part of the beginning to tune to that is that you're going to lose a lot of the success or the status or the power or the resources that you acquired while you were seeking to be tuned to a sick, out-of-tune culture. Mm -hmm. And that the most direct way to set up the next generation is to be a tuned instrument around the nervous system of a developing child. You know, and that's why it feels like... It feels like one of the most healing functions that you can do for humanity is to be a parent but it, you don't directly have to be a parent because there's some people who don't feel called to that and i have some personal opinions that might be controversial around that it but takes that, a community to raise a child right that can you at least be in the presence of developing children as a tuned instrument so they know what it feels like because the deep intelligence of their body is they were born with knowing how to be a tuned instrument. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like Gaia is pulsating out this song that it's hoping all the living instruments on the planet will align to. And the really interesting thing to feel into, man, is the more you get out into nature that has not been molded by culture, you will see that there are trillions of organ... There's a innumerable amount of organisms that are already in tuned and it's trees and it's plants and it's insects and it's wild animals and that there's something inherent about nature that can be a tuning function and there's something inherent about culture that is out of tune and so it feels like one of the struggles for me is there's the path of the type of human that feels called to you know like go out into the cave or go out into the woods and just be a tuning fork there and that there's this argument that you know in the morphogenetic field that that might actually be just as powerful as being in the culture trying to be a tuned instrument it feels like a part of my personal calling is to try to bring the tunedness to culture but there's something inherently difficult about being inside of this comfort and this air conditioning and looking at the bank account and looking at the Instagram likes and all that shit that fundamentally detunes me, mm -hmm. but that I feel called to hold the tension between going and getting tuned or even tuning myself inside of this, which it is possible, and then emanating that tunedness from inside the cluster of sick cancer cells as opposed to going to a part of the body that's already healthy.
Dude, yeah, I can I can relate so much. And just to recap, it's it, it it's not a um a rational place that you need to function from the mind as I need to do something out into the world. It's like, okay, how do I it's it's a form of being, it's a form of nervous system state that you are emanating into your community. And like you said, in the beginning, you have to attune to the community because it is your survival. You can't just go out into nature. You can't just um, go against culture because you will be cast out and you will, <laughs> good luck. You know, uh, like I said, sustainable change happens from the inside and that is from being inside of culture. And And I can relate as far as my, my story. You know, I spent two or three years in Sedona, a lot of time alone in nature every day and deeply tuning my instrument, spending almost every day in, in the vortex, if you will, <laughs> um, spending so much time in nature, uh, deeply aligning and, and um, dropping into my own beingness. And there was a point where I started to feel sort of depressed because I was not bringing this forth from inside the community and I needed right. to descend back into the community. And before, you know, my default setting was that I lived in Sedona and I would drop into the city when I needed to. And now it's the opposite where I'm actually living in the city right. and I need to escape out into nature to find my tuning. And I haven't found the, uh, it's always gonna be a fluctuation on based on what you're, you're being in the world how much time you're going to need to spend attuning and then coming back into culture. And I, and I found that I really like to live out in nature and then descend into the community. But I wasn't a part of a community. I was alone. I was the, the, um, the monk in the cave, you know, for a while. And I needed to come back and, and offer this to lots of people and i know within me i'm going to be be putting myself in a position where i'm going to be around a lot of people i'm going to be around a lot of toxic culture if you will so that i can bring my message my fullest expression into community because that's where it needs that's where people need it it's not like out in the cave in sedona where people need it um but i've I have, I know that I will go through stages of my life where I will have to fluctuate within that. Yeah. And the only way I'm going to be aware of that is how connected to myself and knowing what I need specifically. I mean, we are always striving for equilibrium in all ways. And the only way to know what is going to bring you back into equilibrium is to know where you're at in the given moment and have enough inner stillness and enough presence within your being to know what you need. And one of the things that came up when I was listening to that, that feels like a fucking game changer is that, um, one of the things that Daniel Smartenberger articulated, and he's kind of probably the most public, um, philosopher of this like existential risk group of people who are really looking at like where is culture headed and how do we need to change it because if we don't change it the chance of us and we need those people self-exterminating is uh, almost guaranteed is he talks about 
Um, if you look at organisms on the planet from an evolutionary lens, whenever some organism develops a new mutation or growth where they get some new skill, um, the first couple of generations that get that skill, they don't know how to use it well mm. inside of the uh, genetic competition environment and they die and they don't reproduce as successfully as the ones who maybe by chance or by intelligence use it well. And then after a couple of generations of a lot of die off, there becomes an intuitive knowledge of how to use like this new speed that actually costs more energy. So you have to use it in only the right spot. And that from a human standpoint, the ability to think, to project ourselves into the past or into the future is brand new in evolutionary time. And that there's this uh, whole realm of spiritual practices that essentially say this function is inherently the cause of suffering and just look at animals or children and see how happy they are and that we should actually seek to be present like them and not use this gift of evolution. And that that feels like that's inherently a denial of the intelligence of this unfolding process that we've given the name evolution and that the call is actually no learn how to use this first learn how to have it not destroy you which seems to be the function of like learn how to meditate mm -hmm. learn how to control this thing but then once you've learned how to hold this power we are the first creatures that have the opportunity to be stewards of the evolutionary process as opposed to a, a pawn that gets played by it. And that if you look at where our culture is at and where it is moving, if everyone just became present like a child or an animal, the way the machine is churning, our grandchildren won't have grandchildren. And so the invitation to this new generation of people is, learn how to hold this Promethean fire, but then can you be a proper fire bearer, which can create light at night, which allows you to cook food, which allows you to do alchemy, like alchemy requires mm -hmm. fire. And so there's this pressure that comes from the invitation of the spiritual path that it feels like I'm being called to is not be like a child or be like an animal. It's have the ability to drop into animal or child consciousness, but then also bear the responsibility of the Promethean fire to actually think into the future and actually think, how can we change the designs of our civilization in a way where we can become stewards of the evolutionary process instead of, you know, these animals that got the power of gods, but never developed the wisdom of gods. Mm. It is so important to, you know, go through those first four phases that we talked about to become aware of what your actual destiny is. And because everyone's is different. And that is not going to be the responsibility of everyone. You know, um, I think you're feeling it inside because you have a specific role. 
and we all have different roles. And if you look at culture right now, what I talked about before is the idea of specialization versus generalization and the, and, and being specialized in the world, knowing that you have this specific Promethean fire that you want to act from or let it radiate from your being and do and create and make shit happen in the world, but not losing sight of the holistic paradigm and being connected to our natural state. And our lives are so short. Our lives are so short that we're not going to be able to do it all alone. No. And we need- we Or need, in one generation. Or in one generation. And that's the thing is that we need, like, I think we can become specialists and we can bring forth our specific medicine into the world without losing sight of, without losing the, um, the holistic paradigm nature of what is our um, tuning to the grand scale, right? to the grand scale, so, or to Gaia itself. And something that's so interesting is that, um, I don't know why this is coming up, but maybe you can make sense of it, is that if you look at biology versus technology, and just in my house, I have lots of plants in my house, and I have some plants that are sitting right next to the Wi-Fi router, and those plants just don't do very well. Um, and it seems as if technology specifically and biology do not get along. And I think that there is a way for us to live symbiotically within biology and technology. And I don't think my brain and my mission during this lifetime <laughs> is to be able to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but even if you look at if you look at capitalism, and capital it's it's toxic capitalism that's going on it's 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 capitalism that's it's making money um while destroying the planet while destroying resources but capitalism itself is just competitive nature and com competition doesn't have to be a bad thing competition can be pushing each other to a point of growth and if we were operating from a um we we're all on the same level playing field where we you know, had a holistic paradigm, had a um, Gaia-centric paradigm that we were operating from, imagine what that competition would cause each other to grow and to create in a symbiotic way between technology and, and biology in itself. Yeah, I think a pure expression of what the core of capitalism could be is it's like really high-level jazz players. Really high-level. Like, if, if you're an incredibly high-level jazz player, you can't express your dance fully if the person next to you can't play the piano. Yeah, and someone's got to be holding the rhythm. Right, and that your brilliance and the, the cooperative competition, you know, mm -hmm. like the really interesting thing to think about any team sport, even non-team sports, is that in order for you and I to compete, we have to be cooperating at a meta level where we agree on mm -hmm. the rules. And if we agree upon the rules, which is a cooperation, we, yeah. get, we then get to compete in a way where the reason, like I'm getting goosebumps now, me and Graham were watching a basketball game last night that was Same. maybe the best shooting by both teams oh. that's ever happened in the playoffs. 
And there was a part of us that like our nervous systems got activated and we had to sit up yeah. and, and we started making noise with our mouths that we weren't consciously choosing to make. And there seems to be something inherent in our nervous system that when we see any type of life extend its capability beyond what it thought was possible, we, we have to make noise and like smack our hands together. And that that comes through this type of cooperative competition that like we've got to figure out at an economic level, how do we yeah. create this in such a way where it doesn't get corrupted? Because right now it's fucking corrupted. There needs to be rules to the game that we all operate from. And from that place, we can have healthy competition. Right. And we can have healthy, um, where we push each other and where we you know, drive each other to be the best version that we possibly can. But when we're doing that from a place of toxicity where we are playing, uh, where not everyone's playing by the same rules and the rules need to be like, look at the planet that we're living on. Tap into the energy of Gaia itself. And what does Gaia, what does Gaia want to want to move through us? And it, it there is a, a, I would say a, um, a baseline where we shouldn't be crossing, um, where we shouldn't be throwing things out of balance within our planet. And could you imagine if we had every being on this planet operating from the same baseline levels of understanding the rules of the game, understanding that we need to maintain balance on a, on a Gaia level and therefore from that place we create from there and we push each other to be the fucking best that we possibly can i have a dream i have a dream brother well this feels like this might be the place to end part two <laughs> and we'll have to do a part three and a part four yeah brother. this is truly one of my favorite conversations that i've had and i think that a function of it is being in person you know like yeah there's been like a year and a half of the podcast because of what's been going on globally where most of my podcasts are over Skype or over Zencaster or whatever. And um, when I'm in the presence of a calm nervous system, you know, that knows how to express itself, super dope shit comes mm -hmm. out on the podcast. And so thank you for doing the work to be able to be the type of nervous system that's able to show up to this type of thing. And I look forward to you um, answering the call of moving to Austin and becoming a stake leader because I know <laughs> Dude, it's coming. It's, it has to, man. Um, just within the level of community that's here, uh, with, with, within the past week or so, I have, and I'm getting chills just feeling it because I've never been more welcomed and more um, honored and accepted as part of the community and bringing my gifts um, and, and, and my fullest expression to the tribe and being received. It's been absolutely amazing. And I just want to say thank you for all that you do, brother, and all that you continue to study and you continue to delve in and continue to break down lots of different thought realms and continue to integrate them. And it's an incredibly important thing that needs to be done in this world. So... Thank you for Thank you me, for the, the Promethean fire that, that you are. <laughs> All right. And we will drop in again soon, dude. I'll yep. be here very soon. Love y'all. Love y'all.